Good morning and Happy New Year once again. <coughs> Excuse me. I pray that um, in the year 2017, uh, we will begin this year strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And that by December the 31st of 2017, we will finish even stronger. Amen? Amen. And all because of God's word and God's spirit. The word tells us that we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I pray that we will take each and every day of this year to focus our attention and concentrate on those uh, things to keep us focused in the Lord and keep us focused in the work that we have before us. Because I can tell you this, as we're doing a prophecy update today, for the year 2017, in preparation for a prophecy update, you normally take certain issues that have happened throughout the previous year, and and normally we're dealing with issues that pertain, you know, pertain to the Middle East, Israel, the global scene, and so on and so forth. But I have to tell you that what's been so difficult about all of that is that so much has been happening just in the month of December alone. That practically everything else from before is, is old news, and uh, yet will be it will be um, kind of consolidated within what we're going to look at in in these next uh, few. Uh, I was going to say next few hours. I'm sorry, next few minutes. <laughs> but it could take hours. Uh, but it's uh, it is amazing. Last night, as we were getting started uh, with with the message. Uh, I was telling the people that uh, we, you know, up here with the uh, with the worship team, we, we use our our phones to uh, keep our uh, monitors for our headphones and stuff. Uh, I mean, we're really into high tech stuff, you know. I mean, <laughs> no more floor monitors, stuff like that. So anyway, but because I have that, I get news updates, and so I open that and I open my my iPad here, and and there was that uh, there was a news. Bulletin, you know, saying that there were 35 people killed in Istanbul, Turkey, and 40 people were injured uh, at, at some kind of a uh, nightclub or party or something. And and see, it just continues. It just keeps on. Now, things are happening constantly. <clears throat> and you know, you're praying, oh Lord, you know, here we are, the last day of the year. There's so many people out and about, and you see all two million, two million people at Times Square. Why I don't know, but they do that. And, uh, and so it, it's, you know, you, you, you think it's, um, anything can happen at any moment at any time, and everything to some extent is connected to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the last days. And of course, we have to be ready as, as, his, as his people, as his children, we need to be ready. And uh, so the way we get ready is that we look at what's happening in the world, and then we open the scriptures and we say, wow, these things are happening because the scripture already predicted that they would happen. So that, in, in a nutshell, is what a prophecy update is all about. I'd like to read a couple of passages of scripture to begin, uh, Luke chapter 17 and, uh, and Romans chapter 1. Uh, Luke 17, beginning at verse 26. Uh, just to get started, Jesus said, and, it, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat. They drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man 
is revealed. Now, the only passage that I want to look at in Romans 1 is two verses at the very end. And uh, they, they, they will seem, appear disjointed, but I, I want to focus attention on a, a couple of words here. Uh, I can possibly go back a few verses. Let me, let me just go back a few verses before we get to 31. And even as they did not uh, like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind uh, to do those things which are not convenient, uh, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Maybe we should have started all of that because that's the days and times in which we're living. Uh, and then it says, without understanding, and this is what I want you to see, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, which means hard-hearted toward kindred, no natural affection, no, no love for Brothers, no love for family. Implacable, which means ruthless or cruel, and unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That will apply later on in, in the text, and I'll try to remember to bring these, back, these verses back to your remembrance. On Friday afternoon, as I was perusing the news on the internet, I uh, came upon a MSN news blurb that piqued my interest. Now, sometimes if you open MSN, if your computer just goes straight to it, you, you know, it has these, all these little squares with pictures, and, and they have these that kind of scroll through, you know, these news items. But one of those items really caught my attention. It was titled, When the Perfect City, or I'm sorry, What the Perfect City Would Look Like. What the Perfect City Would Look Like. I said, well, that interests me. Because I read in the book of Revelation, and I see exactly what the perfect city is supposed to look like, and will look like when, when we get there. So I'd like to see what the world thinks about what the perfect city would look like. So to find the perfect city on this planet, it would have to be in an ideal world and, and taking the best qualities of cities around the globe to design, develop, and display it as heaven on earth. And while there were about 30 cities from which to take ideal qualities, I'm going to only mention a few. They, they started with the cleanliness of Calgary, you know, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I've never been there, but they said it's a clean town. Well, okay. And then they said, uh, and then you have to take the quality of, of Hong Kong's commuting, the commuting system of Hong Kong. I've been there, and that made me laugh. Then they said, then you take Bordeaux's health care, and I thought, what? Not ours? <laughs> Bordeaux in France. Tokyo's house prices. Seoul, Korea's fast internet, Zurich's drinking water, Zurich, Switzerland's drinking water, San Diego's weather, well, that's pretty, pretty good. Then the, the one that astounded me was Amsterdam's nightlife. I thought, what? I mean, that's the most perverse city in the world when it comes to nightlife. It's known for its red light districts and all, and and, and that's the perfect world. That's the perfect city. And I thought, what man will do to create his own heaven on earth? Does that sound familiar to you in any way? Creating your own heaven here on earth? When thousands of years ago, man said, who needs God in our advanced day and age? Who needs God? Man saying that today. We've got all of this technology, all of this intellect, all of this stuff. Who needs God? Who needed the God who created the heavens and the earth after man had, had learned to communicate with one another enough to take the serpent's word for it? 
When the serpent had said, listen, did God really say all of these things? Oh, he just, you know, when, when, when you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him. The man took the serpent's word for it. And, and so they began to seek to make themselves as God, to make themselves as immortal, because that is what the Tower of Babel was all about. Man's way of getting to God and becoming God. You think of the New Age movement today, and, 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 and of course it's been around for a good long while, and people call it the New Age, but it's just the old lie. That you can make yourself a god. That was Shirley MacLaine about 30 years ago. I'm making movies at the end of the movie. I am God. I am God. You're an idiot. (laughs) Folks, Solomon was on target when he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes 1 verses 9 through 11. And he said, the thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Now you have to understand that that's really what prophecy is all about. The fact that there are going to be some things done, but it's not ever going to be new again. You know, the thing that has been, it's, it, sh- it, sh- it shall be. It is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? Even advertisers have got us all confused. You know, you, you know the label new and improved? It's just the same old stuff. They just, they just make the, the, the packaging smaller and you pay more. That's a revelation. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. It has been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after And what what Solomon is really getting at is that in a great sense, history teaches us that we learn nothing from history. What has been shall be again. And when you think about it, fallen man and every mistake that fallen man has ever done is going to be repeated again down through the ages, no matter how sophisticated, how technological we've become. And the most important history, though, the most important history to learn is that which has been given to us from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, his holy and his precious word. Because everything about the history in the scriptures is true, and it is right, and it is reliable, and has been proven. And what the scriptures have to say to us today from its inception is precisely what we need to hear concerning the times in which we're living in, coupled with the understanding that the Lord's promised return is so near. Simply because we see things happening that the word of God prophesied thousands of years ago. And it should only remind us that Jesus can come at any moment. And even to this day, man is still trying Still trying to create his own immortality, but with a whole lot more sophistication. Scientists, by the way, are working on something called gene editing. Has anybody ever heard of gene editing? Okay, a few of you have. Which involves actually the editing of DNA. And all of this can be wrapped up in a package known as transhumanism. I would encourage you, you know, if you go around looking up things on Google searches and stuff, just type that in and and read some of the articles that talk about transhumanism. Sadly and quite terrifying, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is, and I quote, pushing forward with a plan to have taxpayers, that's you and me, to have taxpayers fund the mixing of human stem cells with animal embryos to create chimeras, creatures that have part animal and part human elements in pursuit of better lives. Simply to pursue better lives. Let man live longer. Let, let, Let man live healthier. 
We're going to conquer all of these diseases that have been hurting us for all these years. I'm sure some of them have blamed God for it, even though they don't believe in God. Figure that one out. But we, man, humanism, you see, humanism is going to conquer. And while gene editing and, and DNA editing are still in their testing stages, transhumanism scientists claim that it all will be perfected for use by the year 2030, or, and, and they gave themselves a good cushion, 2030 to 2045. But when you think about it, how many of us ever thought we'd get to 2017? Those of us of a certain generation. But now consider this. Before the Tower of Babel, before the Tower of Babel, man had already become extremely wicked, prompting the flood, prompting the worldwide flood. In Genesis 6, verse 5 and following, it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and agreed to him in his, at his heart. Folks, this is not God saying, I made a mistake. No, don't, don't even think that. The understanding of, of the human mind to, to, to understand a, a deep and infinite thought is very hard, so we have to use English words and English thought patterns to try to figure what, what is going on here. But no, he's not claiming any mistakes because God doesn't make mistakes. What it does show is that he, he's burdened that man went in this direction. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for he repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This whole lesson is for us to understand God's mercies and God's grace. And think also the very fact that, that there's a lesson here in the teaching that there is a flood to wipe out all of this sin. And he leaves eight people on an ark that, that survived to, to, you know, to repopulate the earth. But then what is the lesson after that? The lesson after that is man is still sta stained with sin. Man is still going to fall. Man is still going to you know, allow that to, to, you know, to permeate all of society and all of culture and all of, all of the human race. And so even after the flood, did it change the hearts of those who came forth from the sons of Noah? Did it change their hearts? And of course, the answer is no. And the reason why Jesus talks about the days of Noah and the days of Lot and tells us that those who live in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, they, they don't know a lot. So in Luke 17, verses 28 and 29, it says, Likewise also, this is after the flood now, okay? After the flood. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. And these are just descriptions of the fact that life has gone on. Life is, you know, a man is doing all of these things, as in the times of Noah too, but, but man was doing all of these things. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. Did it rain fire and brimstone from heaven because they bought and sold and planted and built it? No. Because we already know why. Sodom was destroyed. We already know why in the days of Noah, the earth and all its inhabitants except for eight people were destroyed. And certainly a, whole, a number of, 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 of animal life. And it says, and it destroyed them all. And we know the horrific sin that, that brought that about, but, but not only did fire and brimstone rain upon Sodom for that, for that sin revealed in Genesis 19, but also for these reasons mentioned in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. These are also some reasons. And obviously they're, they're, they're important reasons. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride. And, and this is something we have to take note of always, that pride is at the very center of, of all sin. Because it was at the very center of the sin 
of Lucifer in heaven. It was at the very heart of the, of, of, of the one who said he wanted to be like the Most High, actually to be above the Most High. Pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. To be so well off and not to care about anybody else, not to care about those that were hurting and hungry. There were a lot of things that pride affected in the hearts of the people of Sodom. But we know what the major reason was. But Jesus stated very clearly, based on the conditions that we see all around, that we are now living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. The insanity of the times mirror the times before the flood and even after. What's happened before will happen again. The things that happened in Sodom, the things that happened in the world before the flood, that was insanity. Spiritual insanity is rejecting completely the, the truth of the word of God, is rejecting completely the, the, the desire of the God who created the heavens and the earth and to make it something that it isn't. We're living in a time of insanity. And unfortunately, wholesale insanity. The January 2017 edition of National Geographic, which is probably on the newsstands now. Certainly you can get it on the, on the internet. But it bears the cover story, Gender Revolution. And on the cover, the picture of a boy who lives as a girl. A young boy. I'm not talking about, you know, high school or college age. No, there's a young boy who at a very young age just said to his, to his, his mother, uh, I'm, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. And they said, okay. That's insanity. Don't you think? Quite recently, an Ohio State University Somali student who had ties to terrorism, it was discovered that he had ties to terrorism, was killed by police after plowing his car into pedestrians and then stabbing some students and teachers. Not with a little knife or a pen knife, with a machete that was about this long. And yes, one police officer responded and did his job and did his duty and shot him and, and, and killed him and stopped the threat. But many university students, not only at Ohio State, but in other campuses after this incident, carrying signs, considered him the victim instead of a terrorist. Insanity? Where are the minds of our young people today? And these are just a couple of diverse situations that are occurring at an alarming rate as we await the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Practically every day we get some kind of a breaking news story. But the problem that we face as believing, as Bible-believing Christians is that for the most part, we are the ones considered out of touch. We are the ones considered old-fashioned. And then we are the ones that are called the bigoted and the racist and the homophobic. And you can go on and on with all the list. Simply because we believe God's word. Simply because we believe in the love of God and the love of Christ and in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we believe in the blood of Christ and we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we stand upon it and we stand upon every word from Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation. And we believe when it says in the beginning God, in those four words, and by believing those four words we believe everything else that comes after it. We're considered the insane ones. But what was it said of the, the church when 
When they were going forth in the book of Acts and preaching the gospel in every town and city and, and city-state that was, you know, where they, where they reached out, people were saying, these people are turning the world upside down. No, they were turning the world right side up. Preaching the gospel of Jesus. The battle of truth, which began nearly 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden, has nearly run its course. God's truth, by the way, has remained the same. It hasn't changed. I will tell you that those people who are right now trying to come up with more and new inventive ways of, of translating the Word of God with new translations and new paraphrases and all are doing more damage by taking away the, the full strength of the truth of God in the Word of God than they are in helping people. But God's Word remains the same. And if you try to water it down, God's not going to be happy. Second thing that we need to remember is that our God never changes. Our God, using a good theological term, is immutable. Our God never changes. And thirdly, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, what you need to do is you need to mark these passages of scripture. I'm only going to give you three because I just gave you three points. So I'm going to give you three passages that you mark in your Bibles and you remember to tell people that this is what the Bible says about his word, about God, and about his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40 verses 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And, and by the way, I'm really sorry. I, I look out at you and everybody's turning their necks to all these sides over here because we, you know, we still haven't gotten our, our, our middle projector fixed. And it should have been. It's not our fault. It's, I won't tell you who. <laughs> so I thank you all for turning your heads to look. Now, if you have one of these, you have to turn your head. It's right there. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. That, so remember, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I want you to go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi 3, verse 6. God speaking, he says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Now, I'd say that's pretty easy to understand. Right? I mean, it's not too hard to interpret that. Pretty simple interpretation. God says, I'm the Lord, I change not. Period. The end. But then he goes on, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And I read that last part, even though it's out of context, but, but nonetheless, what it reminds us of is that he made a promise to, to Jacob that he would not ever consume them. He would keep his covenant to them. So he would not destroy them. Because he doesn't change. Amen? That's a great God we have. And then lastly, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Don't forget this. Memorize it. It's real easy. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Doesn't change. People keep trying to change Jesus. They keep trying to say, well, you know, he never taught against this or he never taught against that. And he, as long as he was the fulfillment of the law, he stood upon the law, not upon people's desires to be able to do what they wanted to do. And, and I wanted to share these things between what we just saw about the insanity of the world and what we're going to be looking at now, which is that prophecy has been fulfilled right before our eyes over the last few weeks, especially here at the end of 2016. You'd have to be a hibernating bear not to know what took place on Friday, December 23rd. And if you, were if you were hibernating that day, let me, let me 
bring you up to date. On December 23rd, the day before the celebrations of Hanukkah and Christmas Eve, the UN Security Council passed a resolution against Israel with the USA abstaining. That abstaining vote was as much a vote against. Normally, the United States will veto any resolutions that are against Israel because we are Israel's closest friend, or at least we should be, and have been since 1948. The UN has tried, and the UN, whenever I say UN, you know, that means, um, of course, we say United Nations. It's just united nothing. Just, a, just a, a, a global conglomeration of people who want to destroy the nation of Israel, which is because they're God's people. But by that vote abstaining, it paved the way for these things to happen. So here's a list of the things that are happening because of this resolution being passed. First of all, the resolution awards the West Bank. I think you're going to see a picture up here, so you'll know where the West Bank is. The Temple Mount, the Western Wall. Now, you may know it as the Wailing Wall. You've all seen pictures of that wall where Jews gather to pray. They're standing at the wall, putting little pieces of paper with prayer requests on them into the cracks and crevices of the wall. Some of us have been there. We've done the very same thing. We go and pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the, the peace of Jerusalem. And it says that the West Bank, the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, and parts of what are considered to be the heart of Israel are to be remanded back to the Palestinian Authority occupation. This is what the resolution says. How ironic that on the day before the celebration of Hanukkah and the lighting of the candle commemorating the taking back of the temple and the Temple Mount from Antiochus Epiphanes, that the temple and the mount were taken away by the UN. Who needs God? We are so sophisticated ourselves. We're becoming God, and we'll tell these Israelis what they need to do. And then on Wednesday, December the 28th, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry lectured Israel for an hour. It was supposed to be a speech about the issues of the Middle East, and especially the two-state solution and all and uh, what uh, the present administration is, uh, uh, is, is, is really wanting to say to everyone about what's happening over with this resolution. So he, he, he lectures Israel for an hour and 13 minutes, <clears throat> pointing out most strongly that it cannot be, and I said, should say Israel cannot be both Jewish and a democracy. Because when he mentions this two-state solution, he says, now, you can have two states, and you can have the Israel, you know, Israel you know, with the Palestinian living, and, and that should be the way, that's the ideal. The ideal. But if there's not a two-state solution, there's only a one state, this is why he says, then you cannot be both Jewish and a democracy. I mean, that's utter absurdity. And I'll tell you why. Because Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. And Israel is not only made up of Jews. It is made up of Jews and Arabs and Druze and other, other, other races and nationalities. And there are Arabs who consider themselves Arab Israelis, and, and even though they don't have to, they, some of them actually will, will join the military. Now, if you're Jewish, you do join the military, but if you're not, you can or you don't, ha- you can or you don't have to. That's democracy. So how ironic, again, that if there ends up being two states, the Palestinian state will be completely Arab without Jews. 
That's been stated. They want the Jews out of their particular land. So the Palestinian state will be completely Arab without Jews, while Israel, which is the only true democracy in the Middle East, has both Jews and Arabs living within its borders as citizens. And then they were over here trying to tell them, well, you know, there's a certain percentage of Jews and Arabs that should be in your, in your land. So Kerry said, as Secretary Kerry said, that Israel must <coughs> give up its territory. Listen, <coughs> it must give up its territory and settlements in Judea and in Samaria. By the way, the West Bank picture that you have up there, much of the West Bank is in Samaria as you go north. So Kerry said that Israel must give up its territory and settlements in Judea and Samaria to allow for a Palestinian state, to allow for a Palestinian state, which is one of the greatest absurdities spoken by the Secretary of State. But what's even worse is that Kerry, Secretary Kerry, equated Jewish settlements with Palestinian terrorism as a moral equivalence. And let me quote him directly so that you'll understand what I mean. And I quote, he said, The truth is that trends on the ground, violence, terrorism, we kind of know where that's being directed, right? The truth is that trends on the ground, violence, terrorism, settlement expansion, now we know who he's talking about there. And then he says, and the seemingly endless occupation, calling Israel the occupiers of their own land. Okay, let me get this quote out, because I'll keep commenting on it and I won't finish it. The truth is that trends on the ground, violence, terrorism, settlement, expansion, and the seemingly endless occupation, they are combining to destroy hopes for peace on both sides. Nonsense! Building houses and apartments and bathrooms is not equal to being bombed, shot, and stabbed. And I mention bathrooms because you know what the the Israelis will do? They will go in and build bathrooms, public bathrooms, in, in, in the Palestinian Authority areas. They go in there themselves, spend their money, because it's still really their land. But now that they go in there and do this, And the thanks that they get is being bombed, stabbed, and shot. Because that happens every day. (sighs) So, there is continued and continual talk for a two-state solution. We've all heard about that, right? Two-state solution. But before there were any Jewish settlements at all, before there were any settlements... The Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the Palestine Liberation Organization, you you remember it as the PLO, Yasser Arafat. Before there were any Jewish settlements, they called for the liberation of Palestine. Now, first of all, there's no Palestine. I mean, let's get straight here. There is no Palestine. There is the state of Israel. And there are people who live in the area of of Israel that are both Jew and Arab. Just just plain and simple. Jew and Arab. And others as well. But there's no Palestine. And we, we, we could go hours to talk about how that came about, but... What does it mean when they call for the liberation of Palestine? Very simply, very simply, the meaning of that statement is the complete destruction of Israel. That's all it means, the complete destruction of Israel. I'm not telling, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not stating, you know, try to shock value with you. This is the, read the history. Did you know that any maps designed by the Palestinian Authority today do not have Israel on them? 
When they make maps, they don't put Israel on them. Why? Because to them it's Palestine and it belongs to them. By the way, it's important to note that Yasser Arafat himself, though he was considered a Palestinian, he was actually Egyptian. And the fact is, you, when you go down through every person who calls himself a, a Palestinian, they're, they're from any number of, of, of the tribes or countries or nations, uh, Arab nations that surround Israel. There's no Palestine. So here's an important fact about the two-state solution. This was already offered by the UN. Do you know when? In 1947. In 1947, the UN proposed to both the, Jew the Jews that were living there in, in what they call Palestine, but is Israel now, and uh, they proposed to uh, the Jews and to the Arabs a two-state solution. In 1947, before the birth of the state of Israel. And do you know that it was rejected by the Arabs and it was accepted by the Jews? The Jews accepted it. The Arabs did not. Why? Because the Arabs wanted it all. And this is the reason why, since 1948, Israel has been, from the very day that they became a nation, they've been fighting for their existence. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's go back to Secretary Kerry, because in, uh, in, in this speech, Secretary Kerry and President Obama, because everything that he was saying in his speech really goes back to, you know, to, to the things that President Obama uh, has, has, has wanted. He wouldn't, he wouldn't state anything that Obama wouldn't want. So Secretary Kerry and President Obama have sought to have and, and this, uh, again, you can look at speeches of, of President Obama at the UN, but uh, he, they've sought to have the 1967 borders reinstated to give back land to the Palestinians. Now, let me read that again this way. They have sought to have the 1967 borders reinstated to give back. You know what that means, right? Quotation marks. To give back land to the Palestinians. The 1967 border, actually before the 1967 Six-Day War. Because the 1967 Six-Day War was fought, folks, it was fought against Jordan, who occupied Jerusalem at the time. Not the Palestinians. It was a nation. It was Jordan. So we have to understand, who did the Jordanians get it from? Well, the Jordanians took it from the British... And the British had taken it from the Turks. So where are the Palestinians in all this? There weren't any. So they have called now, and again, our President and Secretary of State, as well as the UN, have called for Jerusalem to be the capital of both Israel and Palestine. The, but, but here's the problem. The Arabs demand the entire city. In fact, by the way, one of the, one of the points of the resolution was that the, um, the Jewish quarter of, of, the, of the old city is to be given to the Arabs. Jews live there. That's where they live. Their houses are there. That's where they work. And for the time, for the time being, when you go to Israel, you go through all the quarters of, 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 of Jerusalem. You go through the Arab quarter and the Armenian quarter. You go to the, the Jewish quarter. And, and, and so there are uh, now these points of the resolution saying, oh, no, no, we're going to give the Jewish, you need to give the Jewish quarter to the Palestinians. Give back something. How do you give back something that never belonged to them ever? It never belonged to them. Forgot to make that point earlier. So the Arabs are demanding the entire city, but Israel says, no way. All right, so there, there's what's been happening the last week. Let's get biblical. Amen? Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3. 
Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3. Let's get to what the Word of God says about this whole situation. In little bits and pieces, because right now I'm going to, I'm going to, a lot of, uh, I'm going to start teasing you, because this is only part one. Next week is part two. You got to come back. Okay. Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3. His foundation, speaking of God, his foundation is in the holy mountains. That is the holy mountains that surround Jerusalem. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. God loves the gates of Zion. He loves the city of Zion. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. What is the implication? The city belongs to God. It doesn't belong to man. It doesn't belong to Palestinians. It doesn't belong to the UN. It belongs to God. And he has chosen to give it to his people. Jeremiah 31. Verses 35 through 40. It says, Thus saith the Lord. I think that's a good indication that God is saying this. Thus saith the Lord. Which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when, when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, so you'll know his name is the Lord of hosts. He is the, he is the commander of the armies of heaven. And the Lord says, if those ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars... If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. How many of you saw any stars or the, the moon last night? Were, were some of you awakened by the sun this morning? Some of you say, I didn't want to. It's too early. But they were there, right? And though there might have been cloud cover, there were stars beyond the clouds. They were still there. And the moon, you know, it's there somewhere. In verse 37, thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured. So now, he, he says, the sun, moon, and the stars. If, if those ever just go away, so will Israel. Now he says in verse 37, thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured. And the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. If they can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out beneath, I also, or I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. If you can measure the heavens, folks, they're building bigger and bigger telescopes to look out into, into the universe and and, and they just keep, they, they keep finding out there's, there's more beyond. They can't, they can't seem to measure it. Man can't do that, no matter how big the telescope is. And then they try to, you know, now with new technology, they, they, they section out and they say, you know, there's more universes out there. Gee, that's an oxymoron. A universe is one verse. And there are many universes. So... It just keeps going and going. So what is God saying? Well, you can't measure the heavens. And if you want to, uh, you know, search out the foundations of the earth, go right ahead. We tried it when we were kids. Do you remember trying to dig a hole to get, to you, get you to China? I, I gave up when I got to the caliche, you know. It's <laughs> I couldn't get through it. That's all, man. Let's go and eat a hot dog or something. Or a burrito. That's even better. Or as we used to have, we need those. Remember we need those? Okay. Well, I don't know where that came from. Okay. So if, if heaven can be measured, the foundations of the earth can be searched out, which they can't, of course, then. He says, well, if those things can be measured or, or searched out, I'll cast off the seed of Israel for all that they've done. I mean, they've done a lot, right? 
I mean, much of what we read about what Israel's done is like, oh, there they go again, just like us. There we go again. And yet God is so merciful and so gracious. Why? Because he's not a covenant breaker. But do you know that man is? Why, do, why did I read Romans 1, verses 31 and 32? Because of what just happened at the UN. And because of what happened by our Secretary of State in his speech. Covenant breakers. Implacable. Verse 38, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. Now he's taking us on a tour of the city gates. And the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Garev and shall compass about to Goat. And the whole valley of the dead bodies, which is at the south now, the valley of the dead bodies is south of Jerusalem and of the ashes and all the fields unto the brook of Kidron, which means now he's going from the south up toward the east side, the valley, the brook of Kidron, unto the corner of the house gate toward the east, and now he's moved past the east gate, shall be holy unto the Lord. Notice he says all of that, just measured out, this whole circumference of, of, of the wall of the gates of the city, he says, all of that, he says, shall be holy unto the Lord. Holy unto the Lord. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down anymore forever. Lord willing, we'll see that again in March when we go to Israel. And I'm sure it'll be there because God says it's going to be there. So that's one site that we don't have to say, well, it's not there anymore. You know. Like we used to be able to go to Bethlehem. We can't go to Bethlehem now. Why? It's because it's Palestinian authority. Uh, so there's all kinds of rules. You can't get on the Temple Mount. We've been on the Temple Mount because so much changes, you see. Changes all the time. One year you can go up, and now nobody wants to go up because they've, they've really desecrated that whole place with, you know, the, the, the Dome of the Rock Mosque, the gold, big gold dome, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and all of that. I mean, everything is speaking toward what's going to happen in the very near future. But there is going to be a temple built on the Temple Mount. All right, we'll talk about that in a little bit next week. little tease there, a little tease. But simply what the Lord is doing here in this passage in, 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 uh, in Jeremiah is swearing and vowing that his proclamation concerning the nation of Israel is as untouchable and sacred as his creation of the heavens and the earth. His proclamation concerning Israel is sacrosanct, sacrosanct. In other words, it is far too valuable to be interfered with. I wouldn't want to interfere with the things that God says are His. Or the things that God says are holy. No, no we don't want to. It's too valuable. So the Lord is saying in effect, in effect that He will never abandon Israel. He will never abandon Israel. He is faithful to his word. But this territory which belongs to him and given to his people has been declared off limits to the Jews by the UN and those who underhandedly promoted, prepared, and pronounced being our current U.S. administration. Wow. Double wow. Wow, wow. There's something of the prophetic found in the book of Nehemiah that I'd like to point out to you. So go to Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you're doing that, let me just say that the Persian king, Artaxerxes, by the way, what you need to know is as, as, as you begin reading the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has been in captivity in Persia, serving the Persian king there. And... Um, and he's the king's cupbearer. And, and so the cupbearer had to always be in good health. He had to always be in good spirits because he had to test the, the, the wine so that nobody was, was putting any poison in the wine for the king. And he had to taste it and then give it to the king. So one day uh, the king saw 
that uh, Nehemiah was, was very, very sad. So, you know, in any other situation, somebody would have said, well, you know, something's wrong with the wine, but you have to get rid of the cupbearers. You had to kill him and, and then go on and get somebody else. But obviously he served the king well, and, and the king said, what's wrong with you? What's, what's, what's happening? Why are you sad? And Nehemiah told him, I just got news. The walls of Jerusalem where people were going back now from captivity, they were going back, uh, there was a group that went back with Ezra, and they built, they rebuilt the temple kind of putting brick upon brick, you know, just, they, you know, didn't do it real well, but they, they put the temple so they could worship the Lord there in Jerusalem. But there were no walls around Jerusalem to protect the city. So Nehemiah was, was really burdened by that. And because of the Lord, the, the king Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, now sends Nehemiah to go build the walls of Jerusalem. And in doing so, he gives them, this is the short version, he gives them letters, you know, where he can get, you know, all the materials that he needs, the trees and the, and the lumber and everything else that he needs and people, and, and, they, and he's on his way with, with these edicts and these, and, and these uh, uh, letters from the king of, of Persia uh, to, to go build the wall in Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall. So he sent Nehemiah to build the, the, the walls of Jerusalem, but, but as, as, as in every case, there's always opposition, isn't there? When God gives you a word and says, go, go do this, there's always some kind of an opposition. So we read in verse 10, and we begin there. And the opposition is named Sanballat, the Horonite, who was actually serving in, in the court of Samaria. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, notice they're not... Uh, Jews, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, as things were before, so shall they be in another time. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new about this. Today, if any of us go to Israel, we go to support the, the state of Israel and the people of Israel. This is what we do when we go. And of course, you know, there's always the danger of, of things happening, but hey, we, we go in the hands of the Lord. We're not worried about that. We're looking forward to what God's going to do when we go. But the fact of the matter is, people get upset that we're there helping Israel. People get upset that we go because we love Israel. Well, doesn't the scriptures tell us those who bless you shall be blessed and those who curse you shall be cursed? It was the promise that God gave to Abraham. So when Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, and, and, and it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So Nehemiah would arrive in Jerusalem to inspect and survey the walls by night and would urge immediate rebuilding of the walls. So he gets to talk to the people and he tells them, let's, you know, let's get up and build. But now an Arabian, you can call him an Arab because that's okay. An Arabian named Geshem joins the opposition. And, and, and I want you to listen to this exchange. Look at Nehemiah 2, verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the serpent the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, heard that Nehemiah was there now encouraging the people to build the walls of, of Jerusalem, they laughed us to scorn. Nehemiah is speaking this first person. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Will you rebel against the United Nations resolution? Will you rebel against it? How many resolutions have been drawn up against Israel since 1948? Too many to count. And for the most part, every time the United States would veto the resolution. Until last week. Until last week. What is this thing that you will do? Will you rebel against the king? Now, I, you have to listen to this answer by Nehemiah. Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. We will arise and build. But 
ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. I will tell you that those words spoken by Nehemiah were inspired by the Holy Spirit because it conforms to the Word of God. It is confirmed by the Word of God that God had given by promise the land of Israel to his people. So consider the incredible opposition of the world, especially the Arab nations against Israel in 1948. For on the day that they became a nation, they were already fighting for their existence as a people. And ever since, Israel has been wanting peace with their neighbors so that they may exist in peace. Remember the 1947 resolution that was proposed for a two-state solution? The Arabs rejected it. The Jews said, yes, we want peace. Why? Because God is a God of peace, not a God of war. So the conversation in Nehemiah is quite enlightening prophetically because Nehemiah said this. He said, we will arise and build, but you have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. And what Nehemiah was saying to the Palestinian of his time, please understand that the Palestinian is not a, that, that's not a, a, na- a national group. It's a, it's a name applied to people who are in opposition to Israel. What Nehemiah was saying to the Palestinian of his time was that they had no portion, which is physically, in Jerusalem. They had no portion physically in Jerusalem. They had no right legally in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's God's city. The city of God, as we read in that scripture in the song. So they have no right legally in Jerusalem. And then he said that they had no memorial. Which means they had no memorial spiritually in Jerusalem. They had no tie to Jerusalem. And since many of the Arab speaking people in the region there are Muslim. It is significant to note that Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran. It is not mentioned in their most sacred book. But it is certainly mentioned countless times in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament. No memorial in Jerusalem. You can't say that in the past this was given to you because it wasn't. The UN resolution and the secretary's speech of this past week are still in what we can call the declarative realm prophetically. In other words, they've made the declaration. It isn't going to happen today or tomorrow. In other words, that all these things that we talked about, the Temple Mount and and the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall and all of that. This is still in a declarative realm prophetically. The full acting out of these prophetic issues will follow soon. It will follow soon. Which is leading to our study next week. Part two... You don't want to miss it because we're going to conclude some thoughts of what we've kind of laid out there to connect them all with a a proper update of what prophetic things are happening today. So let me leave you with these verses to pique your interest in next week's conclusion. And it begins with a question that I ask, where has God put his name? Where has God put his name? Well, let's begin in number 627. Now, if you read right before verse 27, you realize that that's the, that's the ironic blessing, the blessing that I'll share with you here in just a moment. But in number 627, at the very end of that blessing, it says, and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So where is God's name? It is put upon the children of Israel. Secondly, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. Where is the name of God? And where has God, I should say, put his name? Verse 3 says, 
of 1 Kings 9, And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house. So now we know that the house is the temple built by Solomon. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there, how long? Forever. To put my name there forever. And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. So where is, where has God put his name? In the children of Israel and in the temple. Let's look at 1 Kings 11. There's other places, but it's close to where you are right now. So 1 Kings 11, and we'll close with this, verse 36. And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem. Notice the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. He has put his name on his children. He has put his name in the temple. He has put his name on his city. It's his city. And I don't want to be a nation that wants to challenge God in any of those things. That's what we're going to look at because that is what's happening uh, in, in this scenario that we, we just began today. You see, in a couple of weeks, on the 15th of January, there's going to be a peace conference in Paris where they're going to discuss these resolutions or this resolution as well as the speech of, of Secretary Kerry. All of that is going to be front and center in this peace conference in two weeks. So we've got a week ahead of that to let you know what that's all about. Again, next week, you got to turn in, uh, tune in. Same bat station, same bat time, same bat place. Those of an older generation might remember that. All right. God is good. And God is in control. That's why we don't have to throw things at our TV when we see something happening like what we just saw. We can just hold back and say, wow, Lord, so glad you're in control. And so glad Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Let's all stand. All right. Praise the Lord.